Episode 247, From Quality Measures to Medicare Advantage, Maybe for All, and Price Gouging. John Gorman and I cover it all today. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I speak with John Gorman, who is a government-sponsored health programs guru. He's also the founder of a newly minted organization called Nightingale that, spoiler alert, we discussed towards the end of our conversation today. I just want to interject right here that I, for one, but I'm sure John would agree, do not believe that Medicare Advantage is, as is, perfectly terrific and devoid of problems. There are, of course, well-known issues with coding, the whole exaggerated diagnoses for higher reimbursements thing. Then there's the whole potentially wasteful bonus payments and the restrictive networks of doctors cited issues. We don't get into these during our conversation, focusing instead on comparing MA to FFS Medicare. From there, we get into advice for independent physicians and rural hospitals, and then we wind up at price gouging by nonprofit hospitals. John's points are insightful as always, and I guarantee he will give you a lot to think about. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. John Gorman, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Great to be back, Stacey. Thanks for having me again. Value-based care is becoming ever more omnipresent. Obviously, you can't have value-based care without some kind of quality measurement. You know, what is value? So I'm assuming that we're using these quality measures to assess value. And, you know, I think generally these measures are developed with the triple or even the quadruple aim in mind. That generally what we're after here is improving quality, providing that care at a lower cost, providing for a better member experience during that care. And that growing weight is now being given to the social determinants of health and non-clinical factors that can impact whether or not somebody is having a high-quality, low-cost experience in our system. And if you were going to give advice, you know, like, do you feel like this is going in the right direction? You know, like the quality measures, people are learning from them and, you know, every year they get better and better. What's your feeling about this? Certainly over time, the data and the results show us that plans generally get better at this over time relatively consistently. You know, it's not not flawless and it's not necessarily always going in the right direction. You certainly see in the early years of the STAR ratings program in Medicare Advantage that enormous quality gains were made that only recently plateaued in just the last couple of years as the low-hanging fruit or the fruit on the ground got eaten and CMS consistently raised the bar. That means more and more difficult measures, higher cut points for performance to even qualify under those measures. And so what you've seen is in this last two years especially, relatively little uh, improvement in quality in Medicare Advantage. But, you know, that improvement that's been made also had a ripple effect across all business lines. I mean, you saw quality dramatically improve earlier this decade across the Bible Belt and Southwest, and it was almost completely attributable to the incentives in Medicare Advantage STARS and to a lesser extent in Medicaid HEDIS. It's important to note that half the rating in both 
Medicare and in Medicaid managed care measurement sets, half of the rating is attributable to the member experience. You know, a little bit less to, you know, the pure clinical measures that we've talked about because they're, they're weighted less than the CAP survey or the health of seniors survey is in the overall score. The emphasis has certainly been more and the incentive is more toward improving the member experience than it has been in improving clinical quality from the standpoint of how these guys are scoring this stuff. And do you think that's legit? You know what I mean? Like if we're talking about which is superior, FFS versus a Medicare Advantage style value-based care, is the way that those measures weighted, is that a fair way to draw that assessment? Well, that's a fair question. I think certainly, if for no other reason, it's CMS's hedge against AARP and just trying to make sure that for the senior lobby, that they can, you know, always say that we place huge emphasis on a a really terrific member experience in this program. I think the quality measures are slightly less important in the grand scheme of things with Medicare because I think the vast majority of seniors equate quality with an absence of problems, not necessarily actually improving on clinical outcomes measures. I mean, they don't tend to think that way. So, you know, I think in this first decade of STARS, it really has been about the member experience because that's easier to explain and it helps the industry reflect itself better in the eyes of beneficiaries and the big national organizations that uh, advocate for their interests. So, you know, look, any way you look at this, STARS is hard, really hard. Plans have made massive investments in this. I mean, Humana invested over $100 million into its STAR ratings program like three or four years ago, and it yielded them over $400 million in increased payments this year. And Humana has the vast majority of its membership under four-star or better plans. So it certainly is working from that standpoint that we've got happy members in this program and that CMS is paying a significant amount of money for those demonstrated improvements in quality. And if we just looked at the quality improvements, so forget about the member experience, if we just looked at the quality portion, do we see that Medicare Advantage patients have superior clinical outcomes to the FFS gang? Oh, yeah, there's there's no question about that. I mean, the bigger question is, does this program save money for taxpayers? And that hasn't yet to be blunt, been realized because Congress set the rates so high in the Medicare Modernization Act back in 2003 that it's been, you know, 15 years of Congress cranking down those rates to get us close to 100% fee-for-service as the average of the Medicare payment rate for Medicare Advantage. So the program definitely has better quality indicators than an unmanaged fee-for-service environment. But because the rates were set so high in the Bush administration, the program has yet to save taxpayers money, but we're we're on a, a pretty steady path to getting there sometime in this next decade. And that's what all the hullabaloo was about earlier this summer, where Medicare was, in quotes, threatening to reduce those Medicare Advantage payments and everyone was freaking out. Yeah, I didn't really see that happening, as you stated. it, But it has been very difficult to get the Medicare Advantage benchmarks down below what we think of as the traditional fee-for-service expense rate. Because of that. I mean, this program's got a huge constituency now. You know, over 350 members of Congress signed the annual support letter for the program. So 
cutting those rates is really very hard to do in reality. That just begs the topic of, you know, insurance carrier profitability. And it's pretty well established. You mentioned Humana earlier. I think their stock went up like, what was it, 18% over the past five something years? Sounds about right, yeah. You know, carriers are very obviously moving their focus relative to their service lines from even commercial into Medicare Advantage. Like that's where the cash is, right? Yeah, it keeps the lights on for these payers. Absolutely. So if we're talking about, I mean, not to bring up a lightning rod topic, but if we're talking about Medicare for all, probably the only, and now I'm just quoting pretty much every source you can find on the internet or in paper, Medicare for all is going to wind up meaning Medicare Advantage for all, because that's, as far as an industry perspective goes, that's the politically palatable and industry palatable solution. I agree. Okay, so say we've got Medicare Advantage for All, and that is the most profitable service line for insurance carriers. Now the government have enough leverage to knock down those rates so that this is more affordable than if it was FFS Medicare for Like, how do you see, is that better than FFS Medicare for All? Like, how do you see this? Well, absolutely. I mean, look, let's just let's get a couple of things straight if we're talking about Medicare for All. Right. One is that statement means a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people. You know, Medicare for All could mean Bernie's plan, which would put literally everybody on a fee-for-service Medicare chassis. And while it would cover a lot of people and save a ton of administrative expense that you used to cover those people, Never before in the history of this country have we dropped a nuclear bomb on a $3 trillion industry, and we're not about to start with insurers. So to be clear, Medicare for all, as Bernie envisions it, is never going to happen. Even if, and this is the real gating issue to seeing a law like this enacted, Democrats are going to have to control all three houses of government. They're going to have to control House, Senate, and the White House to have even a prayer of anything like universal coverage enacted. Now, having said that, what you're starting to see now in Kamala Harris's platform, as well as now Mayor Pete Buttigieg's platform, is Medicare Advantage for All, or in Pete's case, Medicare Advantage for All Who Want It. Okay, so that if you still have employer-based insurance, you'll be able to keep it. What Pete is talking about is Medicare Advantage for all who want it. And that, I think, is the only type of Medicare for all proposal that would have a prayer of enactment. And that's only if Democrats control all three branches of government. Obviously, another term for that is probably the public option. Well, yes. I I actually have a call right after this one with a plan that is interested in offering a public option out west, even in the absence of a law like this getting enacted. Very interesting. And to that end, obviously, insurance carriers, they kind of, I'm going to say they probably like this idea because Medicare Advantage is a whole lot more profitable than any other service line, really. So is their profitability at the expense of the country? Or is like Medicare Advantage not necessarily any more or less expensive than FFS and the outcomes are better and people like the plans more? So, you know, six of one, half dozen the other and the cost being the case, you might as well have good quality and good outcomes or better. Right. I mean, listen, because the vast majority of Medicare Advantage medical loss ratios are below 100% really does indicate that if we get the rates right and really start gradually 
winnowing some of this fat out of the system, you know, you will see some taxpayer savings on this thing sometime uh, next decade. And, and, you know, we certainly have been taking, we've taken about 12 to 14% out of these rates since the ACA was enacted. And the plans are still turning a fine margin. You know, on average, they're, they're running about a 3% margin on Medicare Advantage, which on $300 billion in revenue is, you know, is a nice profit to be taken home. Obviously, the ACA has been blamed a number of times based, you know, just specifically or at least in large part due to that medication loss ratio, that 15 percent of a larger number is a bigger absolute sum. So if you drive up costs or if costs go up, that's not necessarily a bad thing if your profit is capped. And that very kind of maybe non-intuitive philosophy has been blamed on, you know, like you look at the cost of hospital care, for example, in this country, and I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, John, but or most listeners of the show, you just look at the trend curve and it's like through the roof for hospital care. So is that the same for Medicare Advantage? In other words, the more patients that get on Medicare Advantage, do we still see those hospital prices just spiking? Sure. I mean, I think the more Medicare Advantage penetration you see, there's generally a close relationship to reduced hospital pricing. Now, that doesn't get helped by this wave of hospital consolidation that we're seeing. And that's probably the biggest contributor to uh, growing inpatient costs is, um, is really that hospitals just keep merging without any clear benefit to consumers uh, or to payers. It's really just to increase the contracting power that these growing hospital systems have. And it gives them more leverage in contract negotiations and then they keep charging more. So a, a more rigorous antitrust approach to hospital mergers would certainly help from that standpoint. I don't think Medicare Advantage has much, if anything, to do with it, if, if not going the other direction, which is to gradually ratchet down on inpatient expenditures and utilization. I mean, that's the whole game in Medicare Advantage, Stacey. We pay more for Medicare Part B for physician services because seniors need to see their doctors a lot. You pay more for Medicare Part D because seniors take a lot of meds. And you, you pay more in B and B to pay less in Part A, which is hospital and inpatient utilization. Got it. And that's the whole game. That's how these companies make their money. And, you know, let's take this from the other standpoint. There's a number of listeners to the show who are very hardworking independent practice physicians who are having the most horrible time negotiating with some of these insurance carriers who are just beating them up relative, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. And, you know, they're getting just pummeled, which obviously there's a lot of data points that show that as well. They're in a really tough spot. Where are the bright spots? Or how would a system need to be in order to help these independent physicians gain the market leverage that these consolidated players are amassing? There really isn't any simple answer to it, Stacey, aside from get bigger and get more sophisticated in terms of the value you bring to the table. I mean, I, I really feel for these guys as son of doctors and like my entire family's doctors. It's the toughest job in this country. And all you can tell these guys is, look, man, Marcus Welby is dead. The whole idea of of solo practice or small physician practices, those days are over. The administrative costs of meeting all the reporting requirements and, uh, you know, being able to ensure that you're delivering quality care, that requires a whole lot of overhead 
and really is only consistent with large multi-specialty practices being successful in this kind of environment. So, you know, what I would say to those guys is, you know, you got to get bigger. You got to get more robust in the services that you offer. If you're really just minding the services that you're providing within the four walls of your clinic or your practice, you know, you're going to get left behind when everybody else is working on making sure you're up on EMRs, that you're really starting to pay more attention to your chronically ill frequent flyers. And ideally, as you're starting to see with, with some of the more sophisticated medical groups that are out there, greater and greater involvement and investment in star ratings in risk adjustment and in social determinants of health. Those are the things that make you valuable to payers. And what about if you're in some kind of specialty? So, you know, your your nose and throat in, you know, some local market. Is, does the same rules apply? So, like, I should be trying to merge with other ENTs, for example, you know, like in my local area? Yeah. or There's always strength in numbers. You know, if you want to think of a health plan as a shark, as many doctors do, the safest play is always to join a school of fish and to be greater in number and therefore having greater bargaining clout. If you're a solo provider or you're in a three-doc ENT practice, they can forget about you and it's not going to hurt anybody. But if you're in a 30-doc ENT practice, they got to deal with you. Yeah, let's take this from the other standpoint then. We keep toggling back and forth with our point of view here, John, but I know you're with me. So if we're thinking about this from a price gouging and predatory pricing standpoint, which ever since Marty McCary published his recent book or started really working and, and highlighting and, and underscoring some of these, air quotes, charitable hospitals that are suing the entire community that they're in, you know, oh, it's, it's like, just appalling. Like it is, right? The UVA story, that's just nauseating, yeah. Yeah, precisely. And there's a new one every day. So obviously, they have created themselves some leverage here and are using it to price gouge. If you were in charge, you know, how would you eliminate the, let's just say, opportunity to engage in such things? There's just laughable enforcement around the idea of nonprofit status for these providers. I mean, if you're a nonprofit, you're supposed to be providing a community good that's worth what you're taking in revenue you would have lost in taxes, right? That's the proposition. And you don't see that happening with the vast majority of hospitals in particular. So one, if you want this to get better, you got to get much more aggressive about enforcing, you know, the community benefit doctrine that any nonprofit facility is supposed to be living and investing under. Okay. So one, UVA is a nonprofit hospital system. There is no way UVA should be taking thousands of patients to court over a couple of hundred bucks in unpaid bills. That's your job in a charitable world if you're a nonprofit health system. And most of these guys, on average, are at hundreds of millions of dollars that they're taking away from taxpayers by not having to pay taxes. So you're supposed to provide that to the community in the form of these types of public benefits. And that certainly does not extend to taking poor patients to court for unpaid bills. Okay, so that's one. Two, you know, I think hospitals are in a real jam because they've got one foot on the dock of fee-for-service incentives, and we've got to fill these beds. And they've got one foot in the canoe of value-based contracting that says we want to reduce unnecessary expenditures. We want to get people out of institutions and back in homes and community-based settings. And hospitals are caught between those two things right now. 
it's very difficult, and I sympathize with these guys as much as I may not sound like it, for the predicament that they're in and trying to figure out, you know, do we fill beds today or do we invest in the future with a fraction of these beds filled and this hospital system making money doing things that we weren't doing today, you know, like remote monitoring of people once they're out of this facility or buying up home and community-based services vendors so that you can manage these folks outside the four walls of the hospital much more effectively. Investing in fleets of vehicles that can take transportation challenge patients to doctor's appointments or to the urgent care instead of to the ER. And it's, you know, it's really hard for these guys to pick and choose which of these investments make sense or do I just solve my immediate problem, which is my daily census. Like, there's just no easy way out of that for them. I interviewed Fraser Bunton probably in 2018 sometime. And his point was, you can't have the same people like in an organization, a hospital organization who go to one meeting about how to increase the number of heads in beds. And then they walk out of that and go into another meeting about how to get heads up out of beds. Like it just it's too much cognitive dissonance. You just can't do it. You kind of almost need a whole separate crew that's doing the value based stuff. You know, otherwise, just there's just too many conflicting priorities. I agree. And that's certainly the case in the executive office and in administration. If the guy at the top of that health system is a guy who's been in that job for 37 years and he knows his only job, as he's always known it, is to fill those beds. It's like Einstein's theorem that, you know, you keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. That's just insanity. You're never going to get too far with uh, old guard hospital administrators unless, like some, and, and there are a few, like you saw at Sharp Healthcare in San Diego or you see at Banner in Phoenix, or you saw at Partners in Boston, where, you know, longtime administrators see the light, smack themselves on the forehead and say, okay, it's time, time for a different path here. And they start making major investments in that new path. I mean, otherwise, it's just, you know, more of the same from these old guard administrators who think my job is really is uh, like a hotel manager is to just keep this place full up. And when do you think it's going to hit the fan for those who are not making the investments or will it is just keep doing what we've always done? And, you know, is that a strategy that's going to work perfectly fine for like how long now before it is it ever going to be a problem? Well, I think so. I mean, you're certainly seeing a lot of hospital closures these days. Most of them are happening in red states that didn't expand Medicaid. But what you're also seeing in those markets, you know, that Sun Belt, the Bible Belt in the Southwest. That's really where Medicare Advantage has been most popular and where you see the, the greatest effects of its penetration in local markets. So there, there are probably several hospitals that have closed because they were not able to get on the value-based train and they ended up under it instead. Now, of course, that's going to be different in market to market. It depends on, you know, is it a one-hospital town? Is it a two-hospital town? If it's a six-hospital town, there's probably going to be some roadkill in that market in the next 10 years as the value-based revolution turns on. There are casualties in any revolution. And the one that, you know, everybody's got their gun sights on is, is inpatient care. So, you know, those guys are really in a Darwinian bind here, which is you don't have to be the biggest or necessarily even the smartest. You just got to be the most adaptable to survive this. And if you're not adapting, you're dying in this environment if you're a hospital. Yeah, I heard something the other day that I loved, John. It was, you know, you've got IQ and you've got EQ. 
which is, you know, right. emotional yeah. intelligence and emotional, uh, yeah. and intellectual intelligence, I guess. There's another yeah. one, AQ, and that's your ability to adapt. I was just reading something that was saying that from an organizational standpoint and also from a, just an individual standpoint, AQ is becoming what's more important than potentially IQ or even EQ. Certainly in our industry, Stacey, and, and I would argue for, you know, the most endangered uh, entities in healthcare, this would be hospitals and at the moment, nursing homes. Adaptability is, is absolutely where it's at right now and why I think, you know, we're going to see a whole lot more failures in the inpatient community than uh, we will successes in this next several years. There's going to be a lot of blood on the ground here. One of the things that is obviously of concern that has been mentioned more than once is rural hospitals where there's just like one hospital for miles and it's that hospital that's closing down. If you were going to give advice to the administrators of some of these rural hospitals, how can they embrace the tenants of value-based care perhaps and help themselves or like what what do you do? The first bit of advice you got to give to any rural hospital administrator is to lobby their governor to expand Medicaid if they haven't already. I mean, that's just the number one thing that every rural hospital needs right now is more covered lives to be paying the bills. Almost all of the rural hospitals that we've seen close in the last eight years were due to governor's recalcitrance to adopt the Medicaid expansion. And that's on them. And I feel bad for those rural hospitals in those red states if they've lobbied for this stuff and then they ran into this this political buzzsaw. I mean, that just sealed their doom right there in many of those cases. Now, having said that, you got plenty of rural hospitals in blue states or states that did expand Medicaid that are still struggling. And it's just the nature of rural life these days, Stacey. I mean, they just, the only way to really make these things work in a lot of these uh, secondary and exurban markets is is just downsizing and really ensuring the facility is of the proper size and staffing for what the need really is. I mean, most of rural America's population is dwindling. It's getting older, it's getting sicker, and more and more folks are moving to burbs and to cities. It's a tough jam. And I don't think you can expect a rural hospital that's got, you know, a monthly census of a couple of hundred people as a candidate for serious advances in value-based contracting. I mean, it's just not in the cards. It's not in the volume. And it's probably not in the culture either. No, that's a broad generalization. You have some rural hospitals out there, Stacey, that are absolute models of adaptability and progressive planning and investment. You know, you look at the Marshfield Clinic. You look at Geisinger. You look at Essentia Health up in Duluth, Minnesota. I mean, these are some of the most premier organizations in the country, and they're all in really seriously rural areas, and they're all doing great. They all have uh, thriving outpatient businesses and uh, major investments in the community's broader health, and they're very progressive in the way that they think about how they approach their most frequent flyers, whether it's Geisinger feeding and delivering medically appropriate meals to its uncontrolled diabetics, or it's uh, Essentia shuttling patients all around northern Minnesota in its own transportation vehicles, or Marshfield Clinic standing up a 340B clinic so that folks can get much, much cheaper drugs. All of those things are great. You know, you look at Intermountain, which has just launched its own generic drug company. You know, there's plenty of examples of rural systems out there adapting 
and succeeding, but they have generally pretty big operations to begin with, and they have really visionary leadership at every level that allows them to execute on that vision. I had interviewed Arshad Rahim, who his advice was also, you've got to pick who you are. Gone are the days where you can be a standalone hospital that does everything from, you know, advanced cardiac surgery to managing chronic patients, as well as cuts and burns. You have to decide whether you're going to be urgent care with an ER, you're going to do population health management, or you're going to be a specialist hospital. That was his thinking. He's just like, pick what you want to be and do that really well because you can't be a jack of all trades. Yeah, exactly. And you can't be all things to all people, especially given the limited resources that you typically have in these kind of facilities. Yep. So talk about Nightingale, John, which I know is, uh, yeah, I want to hear all about this. What are you up to with your new venture? Well, Nightingale is, you know, been my passion project for the last year trying to figure out how to make this work. And what we've arrived at is what's called a qualified opportunity zone fund in an advisory firm that is going to leverage the new opportunity zones that were set up in, in Trump's tax giveaway bill to make big investments in social determinants of health with Medicare and Medicaid plans and with capitated health systems that take risk. Opportunity zones in the statute, Stacey, represent 9,000 communities across the U.S. that are both economically disadvantaged and medically underserved. The statute says that if you invest money in an opportunity zone, that money is exempt from capital gains for 10 years, and then you pay a dramatically reduced rate at the end of that period. What that did was unleash over $6 trillion in capital that is now uh, available for investment in these areas. We're going to use it to make big investments in social determinant interventions with plans that are serving in underserved and medically vulnerable populations. So for instance, we've got a client that wants us to figure out how do we house 20,000 homeless people in Los Angeles County. 15,000 of those roughly are moms and kids. 5,000 of them roughly are permanently homeless folks with serious mental and behavioral health conditions or substance abuse or all the above. You have to take radically different approaches to housing those two different populations. And, you know, we're going to be going out and raising the money and then making the right investments in existing social services providers if they exist. And if they don't, we're going to start them. You know, so it's going to be very entrepreneurial with a goal of investing a billion dollars in social determinants over the next decade at at least. This model works because all these interventions in social determinants, whether it's food security, whether it's housing for the homeless, whether it's transportation to doctor's appointments, whether it's, you know, alleviating loneliness and social isolation among seniors, where, you know, being lonely is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. You know, all of the interventions that we're looking at have a minimum three to eight X return on investment. So that means all of those investments that we're going to make are probably going to be self-sufficient within three to four years. So this is really bridge financing for a revolution in non-clinical benefit that we know will improve the quality of care and reduce expenditures for 
the most vulnerable and expensive patients in the system. So the idea would be you go into one of these opportunity zones and you build yeah. housing for these populations that you just mentioned. Yes. And then yeah. where the revenue comes in is that the local healthcare facilities in the area, obviously it benefits them if they've got any kind of value-based yeah. care going on to yeah. have patients with these basic needs met. So exactly. they'll pay you. They'll pay us and we'll share in the savings with them because we're both bringing the capital and we're executing on the plan. I mean, I, there are very few plans out there, insurers out there, that want to be anything other than a big bill payer. Most of them don't want to have the first thing to do with aligning all of these social services and, and everything else along with all the medical care that they're, they're paying claims on. So in more cases than not, they're going to ask us and our network of allies to figure out how to do this for them. And we'll be more than happy to do that. We've got another client that right now is paying for 200,000 rides to doctor's appointments every month. So they're wasting 50 million bucks a month on Uber and Lyft who are doing a pretty terrible job of it. So they asked us to build a fleet of 2,500 electric vehicles, drivers, maintenance personnel, a logistics center to manage it all so that they're providing rides to those 200,000 people during the day. And at night, we're dropping off food and prescriptions for those who are homebound. That kind of stuff pays off in spades and is ideal. I mean, just couldn't be written any better for Opportunity Zone kind of investment. So if someone's interested in learning more about Nightingale, do you have a website? We actually haven't even posted it up yet. We haven't even announced that we're out there yet. Well, we're probably going to be doing that within the next 30 days. Oh, so, uh, so, so yeah, I got some scoop here, John? Yeah, you got some scoop. And um, <laughs> they want to learn more. They're they're more than willing to you know check me out on LinkedIn. And um, I've got a bunch of stuff on my feed there about social determinants investment and you know the research that yields these kind of findings and what gives us so much confidence that what we're setting out to do is, is going to be wildly successful. John Gorman, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Stacey. Thanks so much for having me back. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.